Well, it's been great to be in the Lord's house to sing together today, and now we look forward to what God has to show us from his word today. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of John, chapter 10. Last week we began this passage, and uh, I kind of left you there last week and said you have to come back, so thank you for coming back. And uh, if you weren't here last week, we'll try to catch up where we were, and, uh, and hopefully um, you, can, you can ride the rest of it out here with us and see what God has to teach us here as we close out John chapter 10. In the book of, in the gospel of John, which is centered around this theme that there is life in Jesus, the Son of God. John consistently writes throughout this gospel with that theme in mind that he would point us to Jesus Christ. And that, as is said in chapter 20, that, that you would believe in him. That you would make a decision with your life to follow Jesus Christ, and then live out that decision in the power of God. And so we're here in John 10, verses 22 through 42. We began looking last week at the reality of rejection in the ministry of Jesus, and then we'll talk secondly about what the reality is of rejecting Jesus Christ. Let's read the whole passage here together today to recover where we were and understand the context. John 10, verses 22 through 42, now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods. If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, You are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to a place where John was baptizing at that first. And there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true. And many believed in him there. Lord, we thank you for the time we have set aside in our service today for that which is most important, the word of God. And we ask that you would use that word in our hearts today, that the Holy Spirit would have free reign to take the word of God, apply it to our hearts and lives, convict us of our sins, show us the next step we need to take spiritually. For one who may hear this message today, perhaps they have never come to this point of belief. They, like the religious leaders who stood around 2,000 years ago talking to Jesus, have been hostile and antagonistic to the gospel, have turned it away from their hearts. 
Lord, I pray today that you and your grace would once again convict them of their sin and draw them to yourself. May they respond in faith and belief in you. For others who are here today, Lord, who have trusted you as Savior, we need to see once again who you are. We need to see what, what it is in our lives that we need to put out of our lives with your help, that we may live out our sanctification with your help, your strength, your power in our lives. Lord, most of all, we pray that you would be honored and glorified in what's said and done here today. May we leave this place different than we came in because we have heard the word of God proclaimed and you have applied it to our hearts. your name we pray. Amen. Light is the enemy of darkness. By their very definitions, light and darkness are complete opposites and therefore are intolerable of one another. That is so fitting, that is why it's so fitting, by the way, throughout Scripture, that often darkness is used to describe sin, while the work of God and who He is is often used, the picture of light is used to describe that. When Jesus was on earth, he battled against the darkness of sin that was settled in the hearts of mankind. And it was especially seen, we see it in John's gospel time and again, in the hearts of those who claimed to uphold the teachings of Scripture when in reality they were advancing their own agenda and neglecting the truth of God, pushing back against the light. And as Jesus continues to call out the religious leaders here in John 10, we see the spiral of rejection that they continue on. They not only reject Jesus, the incarnate word, but they reject the the, the word of God itself, favoring instead their own ideals of religion and control. And, And just to remind you of where we are in the main idea of this passage is this, that the reality of Jesus' identity and work confronts unbelief exposing it and challenging unbelievers to turn to him. One of the glorious and great things about Jesus and his ministry is he never left unbelief unexposed. He showed people what does this mean, and he showed them who he is and why he is worthy to be believed, and he does this once again here in the teeth of those who want nothing to do with him. And we'll look again, remind ourselves about the hostile intentions that this crowd had even as they cornered Jesus on Solomon's porch here in the temple. And Jesus continued to challenge unbelievers to follow him. And we'll see, as I, as I mentioned before, that there's a reality that, that when it comes to the message of Jesus, there's the reality is that people are going to reject the message. I mean, we... We look around in our world today and we see people who have rejected the message of Jesus Christ. But then there's a further reality that, that what comes when you reject Jesus Christ? What does that mean for your heart, your soul, and your life? And, and that reality is one that is not pleasant. But it's necessary that we understand it because that's part of the message of salvation. To understand that if we are lost, this is what's going to happen. And those of us who know Christ understand that that there is a world where sinners are dying and going to hell today. And that should stir our hearts to share the message of the gospel with others. 
And so let's, let's remind ourselves of where we are in this passage. In John chapter 10, in, in the first few verses here, in verses 22 through 30 of our section, we, we saw last week the besieging crowd that came around Jesus. In verses 22 and 23, I, I told you last week, the setting of John 10 changes. We're, we fast forward a couple of months from, from the end of verse 21 into the, end of, into the beginning of verse 22. Because here, the Jews are observing what's called the Feast of Dedication. As I said last week, sometimes that's called the Feast of Lights, uh, or, or we may know it as the name Hanukkah. And John tells us that Jesus is here at the temple on, in Solomon's porch, and it is here as Jesus walks that he is confronted by the religious leaders of Israel once again. And in verse 24, you see the the hostile intentions that are coming just from the posture that these men take as they, the word is so accurately translated there, surround Jesus. They are seeking to hem him in so that they may carry out their plans. And, And with him surrounded, they demand Jesus answer their burning question. They want to know, are you the Christ? And I had an interesting discussion with someone after this last week after this message last week, because you read that, and in one sense you think, well, that's great, they're asking the right question, but you understand the context, and you understand what Jesus has done, and the question makes no sense. It, 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 it can only serve malicious intentions. They want Jesus to answer a question on their terms so that they may do something with it, and, and you're going to see here what it is they want to do. Because that question really needs not to be asked As you've read the book of John and we've studied the book of John, Jesus has proven himself time and again as the Messiah. There's no doubt of that. Again, if you want just one singular proof, read John chapter 9, right? And see what Jesus does there. And then in verses 25 through 30, Jesus made then some convicting claims because in those first two verses, Jesus calls these men out twice for their failure to believe in him. They had not failed to see the truth, but instead what they had done is taking a stance of hatred and antagonism towards the truth. Jesus had done works that had proved his origin as the Son of God, and he had done things that no one had ever done before. And yet they continued to persist in their unbelief. And these ones who were gathered around Jesus do not believe, Jesus says, because they are not his sheep. And I told you last week that the overriding characteristic of God's sheep is that they listen to the voice of Jesus, the good shepherd. That is the the overriding, number one, primary characteristic of those who are sheep in God's flock. They listen to the voice of the good shepherd. And then Jesus goes on as he's continuing to convict these men of, of their failure to believe in him and, and, and continues to call them out for what they should have known. He also at the same time gives great comfort and reassurance to those who have trusted in him because he, he shares here that eternal life in himself comes with this promise that the one who has it will never die. Now, There are certainly those, we said before, that that masquerade as sheep. They have never truly trusted in Jesus as Savior, though they pretend to have done so. These have not the promise of eternal life, but only the promise of eternal punishment and judgment for their sin. In order to find eternal life, you must respond to the voice of the shepherd. 
And this shepherd, Jesus, God the Son, is one with God the Father, he says at the end of verse 30, after he has just talked about the security that the sheep have in God the Father, that no one can wrestle away one from the Father who has truly placed his faith in him. Jesus then says in verse 30, I and my Father are one. And this is the statement that the passage is about to turn on here, and we're about to see that the next things that happen. And we want to understand here that, that what Jesus is claiming here is he's claiming equality with God, which is something that is right and well for him to do. He is not saying that, that he and the Father are the same person of the Trinity, because there is one God and three persons, God the Father, God the Son, who is Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. But what he's saying is they are unified in purpose, in essence, in equality, And the people who are standing there don't miss what he says. And it brings about, again, a negative response. This is where we left off last time. We see now in verses 31 through 39 the blasphemous charge that is brought up against Jesus. Look at verses 31 through 33, and you see the pharisaical justice that they seek to enact. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father, For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself God. So once again, Jesus' words here are not misunderstood. He did not skirt the issue of his deity, though you do notice, okay, they asked this question uh, in verse 24, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. That was their, de- it's not really a question, it's a demand, right? Now you do notice Jesus never says, I am the Christ. Did you catch that? What does he say? I and the Father are one. And if you understand again some of the context we talked about last week, we might understand why Jesus doesn't use the term Christ here. The Feast of Dedication is again one of those times in Israel where where national pride is very high, and people would, would surely at that time um, have these, would really key in on their own notions of who the Christ or the Messiah would be. And, and we understand that, that most people saw the Christ as a political figure who would come and overthrow the government and restore the glory to the nation of Israel and rule as king. And I'll ask you, as I asked you last week, will Jesus one day sit on the throne of David? Is Jesus the king of kings? But that is not why he came the first time. He came to save men from sin. And so, if we understand the common misunderstandings and misapplications of the title, the Christ, we understand here perhaps why Jesus did not use it. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus was not the Christ. He is the Christ, as we sang this morning, the Son of the living God. His own disciples recognized that in John chapter 6 when they said, you are the Christ. What he was doing was seeking to establish with everyone who heard him what it meant to be the Christ. That's what he's doing here. It means oneness with God in unity, essence, and purpose. It means equality with God the Father as God the Son. And notice here, Jesus' meaning behind his words was not missed. And as before, those who gathered around prepared to carry out their own brand of justice. 
Now, if you remember from some of our discussions earlier in the book of John, you would remember that there, are, there is construction at this time going on in the temple as Herod is renovating the temple. And so, quite conveniently, guess what there is in a construction site? There's a lot of rocks. And so you see here that people go to the construction area and they come back with rocks. They take up stones. They literally take them up and carry them to the porch that they may stone Jesus. Now, technically, they can't do this. Technically, they cannot execute Jesus because technically it is up to the Roman government to carry out capital punishment. However, it has been well observed that it would be next to impossible for the Roman government to, ha- to halt every mob killing that takes place. That's literally what's about to happen here. That in their minds, they're going to form a mob and they're going to kill Jesus before the Romans can do anything about it. With these actions, they're hoping to overtake Jesus and carry out that deed. But notice, Jesus, as God, once again halts them with his words. He says, many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? He wishes to know, for what good work that he has done do they intend to kill him? He's not softening his claim, by the way. He's not withdrawing what he said. He's going in further on it. I have shown you these things from my Father. I have done the work of God. I am, I am, he's intensifying the words, calling attention to his relationship with God as his Father. And he emphasizes that he has done nothing worthy of stoning in the signs that he has performed. In fact, when Jesus says here, for what good work? He says, many good works I have shown you. The word good there carries the idea of something that is morally excellent as well as praiseworthy and beautiful. I read this um, in the past couple weeks in a commentator, uh, one of the commentators illustrated this way. I I thought it was a beautiful illustration, but just, it's not original with me, but I think it it helps capture the picture of what, what is going on here. Imagine, if you would, for just a moment, that Rembrandt, are you familiar with Rembrandt, the, the painter and, and the beautiful works of art? Okay, and you say, I don't know Rembrandt. We'll, we'll pick another one of the Ninja Turtles that's named after him, okay? And, and one of those guys who went out and painted all of those things, right? Imagine, if you would, Rembrandt goes back to elementary school and he fails kindergarten art class. And as he meets with the teacher, he sits down before the teacher and he and he spreads out these priceless works of art that, that, that now hang in museums. And he looks at the teacher and says, Now, for which one of these good works of art have I failed your class? In the same way, understand what Jesus is saying here. For which one of the good, beautiful, praiseworthy, morally excellent things from God that I have done do you plan to kill me? Because he has done nothing except fulfill the scriptures. He has done nothing except fulfill the will of God. He has, he, has, he has shown us time and again, John has shown us that Jesus does not do anything that does not fit in the will of God, his Father. And yet, the mob here persists. They, they say, well, we're not going to stone you because of a good work, but for blasphemy. Jesus performed signs and works demonstrating his equality with God, and now he is being accused of blasphemy for these things. 
And if you look at this, and you look at the things that Jesus has done, and you look at the way that these people react, perhaps you scratch your head. What is going on here? I mean, these guys, they don't get it, right? This is what sin does, right? It blinds us to the truth. This is what hearts hearts that are hardened against God do. This is also, by the way, what, and I'm going to put in huge quotes here, what religion does. You see, when one is so tied to a religion, and that's, these men were very religious men. When one is so tied to a religion that they will not hear the actual words of God, and they will miss the beauty of who Jesus is and what he's done. My friends, salvation in Jesus Christ isn't about religion. It's about a relationship with the Savior of the world, the one who created you. The law of God was not given as some code that if you check enough boxes, you will earn your way into heaven, that we follow it, that it must be followed so religiously that if you don't fit with inside this little box or you don't fit in my self-righteous attitudes, then you're out. It's to point us to who God is and who we are. But these men here, even though Jesus has demonstrated his deity, the minds of the, this crowd are made up. They have embraced their sinful blindness and they rage in it. And they don't even consider for a moment that what Jesus says might be true. He has convicted them. He has called them out. He has proven who he is and what he says. And so, they will now seek to carry out their own brand of justice because of what it has done to their own hearts. But notice that they, once again, they will not even be able to attempt such actions until Jesus convicts them once again of their own sin. In verses 34 through 39, we see the clear testimony that Jesus gives. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. Jesus, what he does here is he now uses the own, the, the, these men's own lines of reasoning to prove the point of his own identity. He takes the crowd and points them to the word of God. When Jesus says here, is it not written in your law, that word law here is he's referring to the entirety of what the Old Testament is. That all of the, the things that are written in the law and the prophets, all of that. And what Jesus is referencing here is found in Psalm verse 82, verse 6, where we read this. I said, you are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. Now, that's the specific verse that this quote comes from, but it's also possible Jesus is referring then to, obviously, the entirety of Psalm 82, what you can read later on. We won't read it this time. But in this psalm, what, what's going on here is God is rebuking the unjust judges who are in Israel. And what God is saying here is, is these judges were God's representatives to the people. They were charged with upholding his law and his designs for the nation, but they have failed to do so. And if you know anything about the history of Israel, that probably doesn't surprise you that they failed, right? And so in this passage, God refers to the judges as God's. 
That is the same word, by the way, Elohim, that is used to refer to God, the one true God, in the Old Testament. Now, of course, in this sense, it's used in a much lesser way. But nonetheless, it is still the inspired word that God chose. And what it does is it shows the connection between the role of judges and the work of God amongst his people. So God had set up through his law and through the way that that the nation worked that there were these judges who were in charge of carrying out the things that needed to be carried out, the justice that needed to be done, the laws that had to be upheld, the the penalties that had to be executed, whatever it was to be, represent God to the people by upholding whose law? God's law, right? And so what what God is saying here is you are my representative, to the people, but you have failed to do your job. And so Jesus uses this quotation here, speaking about how God referenced people, and he's going to bring that around and connect it to himself in just a second here. We'll see that, but, but I want us to take just a minute here and understand that this quotation by Jesus is an excellent example of Jesus' opinion and attitude about God's written word. Jesus placed a premium on the written word of God. And if you will be a follower of God, and if you will be a growing believer, you too must place a premium on this, the word of God. Jesus says here, when he's he's making this argument, that scripture cannot be broken. Here's what you understand about the Bible. Number one, You cannot live without it. And number two, just because you don't like something doesn't mean you can set it aside. In fact, one of the most famous people in American history, Thomas Jefferson, didn't like a lot of things about the Bible. And if you come to my office, I have a copy of what is known as the Jefferson Bible, where he went through the Word of God, specifically in the Gospels, and he just cut out all the parts he didn't like and he put it back together. Just because you don't like something doesn't make it not true. And just because you don't like something doesn't mean you don't have to listen to it. The word of God is true. Scripture cannot be broken. So Jesus thus reasons from the scriptures, which, by the way, these men revere, that if these men who were evil and these men who who were just the recipients of the word of God were called gods by God himself because they were his representatives. How can it be blasphemy for Jesus, who is the incarnate word, who is sanctified and sent by God the Father to call himself the Son of God? In fact, he is the only one qualified to call himself that. The ones to whom the word of God came in in glorious revelation were called gods, but Jesus, the incarnate word, is far greater than this. And to round out his argument, Jesus then calls on the facts that are laid out before them. He says, if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Jesus says very plainly, if if I don't do the works of God then you shouldn't believe me and you should reject me. 
mean, that's a pretty sound argument, right? If he's not doing the things that God said he would do, if he's not doing the things that are consistent with who God is and what he said the Messiah would do, then they shouldn't believe him. But here's the facts, folks. He is doing exactly what is in line with who God is and what he said. So Jesus, what he's doing is calling them to consider further what they have seen. And if he does do the works of God and they don't believe him, which is exactly what has happened, he says, okay, then believe the works that you have seen that have been done. What he's doing here is he's seeking their further ponderings on his actions. Again, miracles do not create faith, but they can inform faith and strengthen the testimony of truth. That's exactly what Jesus' miracles did. And so Jesus longed for these men to observe what has been done, to take in the facts, and let them seep into their hearts and lives that they might be changed. And it's an amazing thing here that in the face of rejection, Jesus continues to display the compassion of God on lost sinners. How many of you, how many of us, if we were in this place, and thank goodness we're not, because we're not God, right? We're fallen and human and sinful. How many of us would look like, you know what, if that's what you want, just have it your way and walk away? I mean, frankly, that's what we do a lot of times anyway, right? Jesus continued to talk with them, to share with them the truth of who he is, Leaving them, by the way, without an excuse. Leaving them without anything to to say that, that would ever hold water. They would have to come up with stuff. He continued to show them compassion, seeking to convict them of their sin. And what he does, once again, is he brings them to a crossroads. Because that is what the truth always does. It always brings us to a crossroads. Are we going to believe the truth of God or are we going to reject it and go our own way? And we see here what happens in verse 39. Therefore, because of this, because he said all of this to them, because they heard what he said, they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. They wanted plain speech. They wanted him to tell us who you are, and he did. And once again, they choose the road of antagonistic, violent unbelief. And they now seek to seize Jesus and arrest him. But once again, Jesus' time has not come. So therefore, he escapes from them again. And again, there is such darkness in this passage, right? I mean, we see and feel the weight of unbelief. We feel the weight of the sin that is persisted in. And again, it is not unlike our own world that we live in. It is not unlike many, by the way, who sit in the pews of churches week after week and have heard the truth of the gospel and continue to reject it. But John, once again, in the last three verses of this chapter, gives us such glorious truth and light against the backdrop, the dark backdrop of unbelief. Because in verses 40 through 42, we see the believing remnant. We see in verse 40, Jesus' retreat 
And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first and where he stayed. So with this rejection, Jesus' public ministry now comes to an end. You know, we're only about halfway through the book of John. And the rest of the book of John doesn't really deal with the public ministry of Jesus. It's going to deal a lot of, a lot of things here are going to deal with his ministry to his disciples. And so Jesus moves away from the city to an area that was away from the religious leaders, their rejection, and their attempts to kill him before God's time. And he moves to an area, we're told here, where John the Baptist ministered. And this, this area is called Bethany beyond the Jordan. We, you see that all the way back in John chapter 1, verse 28. And it is here that this amazing scene unfolds because in verse 41, you see the ongoing testimony. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true. And I want us to take note of this verse. Especially all who would desire a sign or a miracle should take note of what is said here. Because still today, perhaps you've met some, perhaps you've said something like this or thought something in your own life. You know, if God would just show me a sign, then I would believe, right? But notice, John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus Christ, the one who had come to prepare the way for the Lord, he never performed a miracle. He simply preached the message that he was given by God to proclaim, calling people to repent from their sins. Yet again, it is proven that miracles are not needed to create faith because what happens here? These people have never seen a sign. But John preached the message, people observed who Jesus was, and they believed what John said. And I think that that is a huge challenge to our hearts and lives. That if you would sit there and say, well, if God would just drop a sign in my lap, God has given you everything you need to know in his word. And I would argue with you the fact that you woke up this morning breathing is a miracle. And again, that goes against who we are because we like to think, oh, we're so independent, right? But yet we are very dependent on our creator. And furthermore, this verse should be an encouragement to all who know the Lord and all who spread the news of the gospel. Because perhaps you have taken opportunity to share the gospel with somebody you know. Perhaps it's a family member or a coworker or a neighbor or fill in the blank. And you've been discouraged by how that's gone, right? Because you share the gospel. And I think sometimes we share the gospel and we think, well, this is how you do it. You know, you share the gospel, they get saved, you praise the Lord, and then you find out it doesn't always go that way, do you? Let this be an encouragement to you. If you share the message of the gospel, your message will outlive you. Because the message of God is eternal. Your message can and will outlive your efforts. We may be temporal, but the word of God is eternal and backed by the eternal God. Notice here, John the Baptist has been dead for some time when Jesus returns to this area. But there are still people who remember 
oh, yeah, that's what that guy said, right? They probably didn't say it like that, okay? That's how I would have said it. Oh, that's what he said. And they are still hungering for the truth and open to the greatest news. And I say let that be an encouragement to us because that means we need to be faithful to do the work of God. Well, I, I don't know what I would say. Share the word of God. I don't know who I talk to. Open your eyes and look around. What if they, what if they, what if they don't get saved? What if I, I, I butcher it? It's not up to you. It's up to God to do the work. So be faithful to share the word of God. Because your message can and will outlive you, not because, it, not because of you, but because of what the word of God is. And we see here that there is a growing flock in verse 42. After everything that's happened to such an encouraging verse, we read, and many believed in him there. And once again, the whole theme of John that there is life in Jesus, the Son of God, that these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. It comes into, into full view here because you have the first part of the section we looked at today is full of people who didn't believe. And then we read in verse 42, and many believed. As this chapter closes, we're left with a message of hope that there are many in this area who believe in Jesus because there are always those we see who believe in Jesus even if the majority of mankind is opposed to their creator there are still those who believe and that is exactly what is seen here that is exactly what Jesus promised in his conversations with the religious leaders earlier in this chapter that there would be those who would follow the voice of the shepherd And if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can rejoice that you are not alone and that your life is hid with Christ on high. We have the privilege of living in a a nation where we're allowed to worship God freely. We have a privilege of of walking into a church building on a Sunday morning and and greeting other people who, who probably in a room like this most have professed Jesus Christ as Savior. But there are places in the world where that is not so. I mean, we have even heard from missionaries who who are going to parts of the world where Christianity is not just marginalized. It'll put you on a list. You'll become a target. We read of, of nations where they have clamped down on things like this. And there may be times in our lives when we feel targeted because of what we believe. We need to go back to what God says that that we are secure in him and we're not alone. And if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, listen to the message that Jesus has given here today. And heed the call of his finished work and come to him. Be like the many who have come in this passage believed in Jesus Christ. The reality of Jesus' identity and work confronts unbelief, exposing it and challenging unbelievers to turn to him. The reality of this sinful world we live in is this. Many will reject Jesus. 
Many will choose their sin, their own ideas of what it means to get to heaven, or will straight up seek to tune out everything about it. But the greater reality is this, that if you reject God, and if you reject Jesus Christ, you do it to your own detriment. Because the Bible is very clear about the fate of those who reject Jesus Christ. If you reject Jesus, you are not sticking it to God. You are aligning yourself against God and therefore will suffer the wrath of a God in eternity. The mark of a true member of God's flock is that you hear and obey his voice. So very simply, the question is this. Have you responded to God's call of salvation? Now, God does not audibly speak to us today, but you know what he speaks to us through? He speaks to us through his word. We're going to look at that tonight in 2 Timothy chapter 3 as we close out our Vacation Bible School week. We're going to look at the scriptures that make us wise unto salvation. The the scriptures do not save us. They point us to the one who does. His Holy Spirit convicts our hearts of sin and shows us through God's perfect and holy word how we can be eternally right with him. And if you have not answered the call of the Savior, I encourage and implore you to do so today. And if you have then you are his disciple. And disciples place a premium on the word of God. Just as Jesus valued the written word of God above all else, so must we. And if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you need to find your direction, your hope, conviction, life, and solace in the word of God alone. This is your ultimate guide of truth. Not your feelings, not a person, not the internet, and not anything else. This is the guide of truth. Rejection is a reality when it comes to the gospel. But don't be discouraged. Share the gospel. Pray for the lost souls of those you know in your life and ask God to do his mighty work. The message of the gospel will outlive any influence you or I may have in someone's life. And you and I may never know the impact it may have. But that's the glory of the word of God. That's the glory of the work of God that he allows us to be a part of. So may we today see the reality of the rejection of what it means to reject him. And may we also see the, the glorious realities of what it means to embrace him and become his disciple. Father, we thank you for your word and its power to change our lives. We thank you for the opportunity we've had to come here today and study it together. We thank you for the record that we have of Jesus and his work. We thank you for the word of God preserved for us today. And we ask that that word would continue to do a work in our hearts even as we close our message and service today. That like the hammer that breaks the rock to pieces, it would continue to hammer away at the hearts of those who have heard it today. Lord, that you would break up the hardness of heart of one who has rejected you, maybe outwardly, maybe, or maybe 
maybe uh, with some outward antagonism, or maybe, Lord, it's a passive rejection. But, Lord, it's still rejection. May they see their need to embrace you as Savior. To the believer today, Lord, who is wrestling with sin, who has struggled and fallen and at times given up, or at times has secretly enjoyed sin, you show them who you are, their God, their Savior. Show them how you want them to live for you and your glory. Draw them to yourself. Convict them of that. And Lord, may we place a premium on who you are and what you've said. May we live for you. We ask for your blessing as we close this service. We pray that you would bring us back tonight to worship you, uh, to hear from our Vacation Bible School kids tonight. May we just give you the praise and the honor and the glory for all that's said and done. In your name we pray. Amen.